0: words, They get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle Murkin' fool, like Squirtle and cake boo Cold blood is with the Swarovski, I'm a boss
1: This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the spiritual and the physical worlds. I've been thinking about magic and the mundane. I've been thinking about physics, metaphysics, quantum physics, and E equals MC squared. I've been thinking about Einstein and Jung, the rational mind and the feeling heart, scientific proof and evidence, and how crazy it is, and you can have plenty of evidence for something you may not be able to scientifically prove. I've been thinking about connection, control, and letting go. Mostly, I've been thinking about sitting on the fence, and about which side of the fence I shall choose to live on, and whether there really is a fence at all. And I've been thinking about synchronicity and trust, and what a wild ride this life could be if we could truly believe in the convention of miracles, flash thunderstorms, and flickering lights. My guest today is psychiatrist and newly minted author, soon-to-be best-selling author, Dr. Anna Yusam and we'll be talking about the state of the universe and her incredible, yet highly credible book, Fulfilled, How Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. Welcome, Dr. Useman, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Ellie. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So I want to start with uh, William James, because a quote from him greeted me on my computer when I began working on your interview. And the quote is, if you change your mind, you change your life. And maybe we can talk about how your life has changed, your psychiatric practice changed, and how this book came into being. So we'll start from the end, how the book came into being.
0: Sure, sure. And indeed, that's such a powerful quote. It really is the power of our thoughts, really, and our minds to shape our reality, and thereby our destinies and our lives. And in my own life, you know, I started out as a traditional psychiatrist training. You know, I did my undergraduate at Stanford, my medical schooling at Yale Medical School, my psychiatry residency at NYU here in New York City. I studied hard. I, you know, was thought that I was doing it all right. And then my own life hit a little bit of a bump in the road. It was what I call my dark night of the soul, a relationship that I was in. I realized that this man was never going to be emotionally available to me in the way that I had hoped. And at the same time, I was having trouble in my residency. For the first time in my life, I was in academic trouble and I felt like a failure. So, as a hardworking perfectionist, never having encountered quite that before. And it was the coalescence of these two things that put me into this darkness that I started trying to figure out how to get out of. And with all these healing tools under my belt, having gone to these schools and, you know, tried to. Become the best psychiatrist I could be, I found myself falling short in my ability to help myself. And that's what got me started on a healing journey. And it ended up being a spiritual journey. I started looking for healing outside of medicine and ended up exploring many different cultural traditions of healing. I studied with shamans in South Africa and South America. I went and spent some time at an ashram in India started learning Buddhist meditation in Thailand, and came back here to um, New York City and started studying Kabbalah. And in the midst of all this, I started learning principles that were substantially different from anything that I learned about healing in my traditional medical education. And as I did that, I found that the darkness and the void and the emptiness that I was feeling, the pain I was feeling deep inside, started to lift. And, you know, my life started changing. And as my life changed, I started integrating these principles more into my work with patients and have been doing that now for the last 10 years. And that's really what this book is about. It's about using more than psychiatry, traditional psychiatry. It's about integrating spirituality, psychology, and psychiatry together in the service of healing. And how
1: difficult of a time and a shift was that for you to make when you were in that dark place where you thought, okay, I've checked all the boxes. I've done all the things that I was meant to do to have a happy life. Outwardly, anyone looking at me would think, you know, she should be so happy. So, how difficult was that at the time to sort of accept that you were not as happy as maybe you expected to be and others expected you to be? And then to make a shift away from the traditional path to finding happiness?
0: Right. You know, it was a very, it was difficult because it was a very scary process. There was this world that I knew I was doing things one way my whole life. And that, even though I was unhappy, at least that path was known and certain. This whole other path, there was so much uncertainty. There was no familiarity. How am I supposed to now start living this whole different life in a way, you know, when everyone that I know has known me in this one way? But that was one part of it. The other part was that I was just in pain. And, you know, we start to change our lives when we hit rock bottom. I feel like that was really my rock bottom. I didn't have a choice but to change. And so, although there was having to deal with uncertainty and face fear, the motivation was so strong to get over the pain, I felt like I had to do it. I didn't even have a choice.
1: And was there support that you found somewhere within your environment of family and friends that pushed you in an alternative direction?
0: Most definitely. I have um, colleagues who are healers in all different walks of life in traditional Chinese medicine. Um, Eventually I started studying Kabbalah and I got a Kabbalah teacher, so kind of a mentor in that regard. And at the same time, I kept working with a brilliant psychiatrist here in New York City, my therapist for the last 10 years, who really supported me kind of from a more traditional standpoint. So I had these people who have been my mentors and guides for many years now and all of them helping me to integrate the different principles in the service of healing.
1: So I loved in the foreword of your book, Dr. Eben Alexander ends the foreword, he writes, with bon voyage. And I thought, okay, that's fabulous and cheeky at the same time, um, and also very accurate. Was it for you really a, a trip in all meanings of the word um, to delve into the spiritual world and then combine that with your background in
0: science? Oh, very much so. And it continues to be that. And, you know, it's so interesting because in medical school, you're trained in the model of science. Science is the currency of exchange. And that you're taught that anything that is real has to be observable, reproducible, testable via scientific experiment, and, you know, thereby, in a way, irrefutable from that standpoint. But the world of the spirit is so different. It's entirely subjective, very difficult to test, often sacred, often grounded in things like miracles, how do you test that scientifically? And so when you start to move over into this world and apply some of those principles, what you realize is that the world works from such a different standpoint than I ever knew. And, you know, for instance, one of the principles of Kabbalah is that the world that we see with our eyes, you know, which science believes is 100% of true reality, Kabbalah believes it's only 1% of true reality, and that 99% of reality really isn't observed. It's something that's greater. It's like the upper worlds that are beyond us, that we're just, you know, a little part of the greater whole.
1: And so was that more exciting or terrifying when you started to learn that and actually believe it? Was there a point where it was like, okay, this seems to be actually true, which means so much of what I learned and thought before is not?
0: Right, right. And it was, you know... um... An interesting question because I was a skeptic when I was learning all this. The whole time that I was being exposed to this information, I was like, well, where's the science to prove it? You know, how do you how do they know? This is just words and you know, and I come from a very um skeptical, rational background. My father was a physicist. My mother was always a very spiritual person in many ways, but I've always been a lot like my dad, very rational, doubting, skeptical. So for me to kind of have this shift in my perspective. It really was based in many ways on my experiencing things and then opening myself to this way of being and seeing experiences come into my life that I'd never experienced before and then with my patients showing that they were healing more thoroughly and faster through employing more spiritual methods than I had seen with traditional, you know, the traditional approach that I was using. So you
1: had evidence of it, even if it wasn't evidence that you could scientifically prove. Um it, it was evidence that you experienced and you were experiencing with your patients and be that buoyed you up to kind of go forward in your journey.
0: Exactly. That's how it started, precisely. And then I started like combing the medical literature and looking for what's the science behind all this? And then I realized that actually there have been so many studies validating the power of spirituality and helping people heal from both medical psychological you know and psychological ailments on one hand and then there's also studies kind of validating some of the ways in which that healing occurs and this is more in the realm of quantum physics and the nature of consciousness things that haven't been as scientifically steadfast that are much more in the realm of you know yet to be studied and verified but nevertheless a lot of people are you know studying in that field now
1: and I want to talk about that and dive into that a little more deeply later in the show about the science and some of the science that really is not new at all. And then some of the science that is very new and the, the, the alignment with between the two. Before though, I want to talk a little bit more about the book or a little more depth about the book. Um, it seems like the focus of the book is really guiding the reader to a greater experience of purpose and happiness. And you begin with three core beliefs that the reader is going to embark on um, resolving and and uh, maybe changing. And they are. I am aware of my. I am unaware of my soul. I give away my power. I am disconnected and alone. So let's talk a little bit about what the new beliefs would be and how they would reflect in a more expanded consciousness.
0: Absolutely yes. And so the first belief is I'm disconnected from my soul. The shift that I hope readers will have in the course of reading this book, is I am interconnected and aligned with my soul. So soul isn't even something that's part of the medical literature. It's you know, not something I ever studied in medical school, and so I only, in my studies, began to understand what it is you know, that is the concept of soul and then how to connect with it. And that's the first premise of my book. It's really connecting to your soul and cultivating authenticity. Before you can start to fix your life, you have to know who you are deep inside. And that means who you are underneath all the labels that society and, you know, expectations and family and yourself often has, have imposed upon yourself. It's being able to free yourself enough to really get in touch with what you most deeply want and what you feel that you're meant to be doing in this world.
1: Can you – I'm going to interrupt just for a second because you, you said something that made me really – can you imagine in the future, and would that future be 5, 10, 20 years from now, where the soul is taught about in medical school and it's a big part of the curriculum?
0: I would love for that to be the case. And you know, and it's interesting because the ideas of the book, you know, some people would look at them with a lot of um, scrutiny and skepticism – But the book also was endorsed by two former presidents of the American Psychiatric Association. And so even the psychiatric community is starting to come around to these ideas. So I very much hope indeed that over time that will, you know, that will be the case. When I started studying soul, I had not really heard about it in school, and I had to even look up the definition of soul. What is a soul?
1: Which makes sense because it's one of those things where you think you know it is. It's like when kids will sometimes ask you the definition of something and you think, huh, like I'm going to look that up because I could tell you what I think it is, but I'm not sure how accurate I actually am. So it makes a lot of sense. So uh, so I interrupted. Um, you were talking about being disconnected from your, your soul and what that looks like and sort of what the effects of that are for a person.
0: Yes, yes. And... When people find themselves reconnecting with their soul, it means a number of things. One of them is starting to feel just more true to yourself, like you're you're living a more honest life. It means being more honest with yourself and with other people in your life. Another part of that is also starting to own and befriend your shadow side. This is the part of us that we often unconsciously disavow and kind of push away. It's the part of us we somehow see as unlovable or that as we, you know, were growing up somehow wasn't accepted. So we don't even see that part as a part of ourselves. And then an interesting thing happens. We will take those qualities that we see as unlovable and project them onto others. And then we'll find those as the qualities that we find annoying in other people. And it's often the things that most annoy us about others are our own projections of the unlovable parts of ourselves. And it's an interesting exercise you could do. You can ask yourself the question, what most annoys me about people? Kind of, you know, ask yourself that today. And then the top three qualities, look back at the end of the day and say, how is that a reflection of parts of me that I've pushed away and parts of me that I don't love? As we start to accept those parts of ourselves suddenly we become much less annoyed with other people. It's a very interesting thing. And that owning your shadow side is another really important part of authenticity.
1: And so I want to underline the importance in all realms of our, our lives and, and including happiness and purpose at, at all levels as far as being our authentic selves and not not even to mention the, the energy that it takes and the energy that's lost when we are cutting off a part of our authentic self or having to utilize our energy to really push it away or, or shut it down. What are sort of the... How do people present in your practice and just in in life that you've noticed when they really aren't living their authentic lives or, or embracing their authentic selves?
0: People present, I think, first and foremost, they're exhausted. There's like an exhaustion quality. And certainly people can present exhausted for many reasons. People here in New York City work very, 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 very hard. So people, there could be all sorts of workaholism and things like that. But oftentimes there's just this deep inner fatigue that you could see that someone's living this life that isn't their own. And they're trying to do things which they really don't want to be doing. They're living in a way they really don't want to be living. And it's getting to be too much. And finally they seek help. And it's a beautiful thing when they come through the door like this because often when you finally walk through that door, that's when your life starts to change. So it's really powerful when people do that.
1: You know, there's always, you hear that people, you know, the the terrible known is better than the unknown. And so that people may stay in the state of being pretty unhappy and pretty dissatisfied because it's known and it, it feels safe, I'm guessing, is the reason behind that.
0: Exactly, exactly. It feels safe and so many people are expecting a person. You know, oftentimes people have all sorts of um in a way ties to being a certain way, even if that way isn't an authentic self. All their friends know him as that person. Their family may know him as that person. Their family like we're defined in large part by others' expectations and external labels. And so it's hard to take those off and ask, who am I underneath all that?
1: When I read your book and I came to the end, I'm like, okay, there are two heroes in the book. I mean, you're I'm going to say three because I think you're a hero as well. It's, it, you did such a great job, and you shared your hero's journey, and you were brave to put it out there in in public. Um, but the other two, I think, are Carl Jung and Einstein for me throughout the book. I thought, okay, the, those are the heroes. And one of the quotes of Jung that you have in the book is, a privilege of a lifetime is, is to become who you truly are. And part of that is owning your power. And that was one of the other core beliefs that you said uh, in the book that needs to sh- be shifted, that I give away my power to I own my power. So let's talk about that a little bit, and then we'll swing back around to the soul.
0: Absolutely, yes. So, so many of us in so many ways are constantly giving away our power. Um, and what that means is, We are, in a way, expecting other people to fulfill us. We are, you know, we could be blaming people for the things that are wrong in our own lives. A lot of people take on what we call a victim mentality. They see themselves as victims in their life as opposed to the ones responsible for creating the life that they want. And in the book, I give a number of tools for people to reclaim their power, and those include relinquishing victim mentality. Um, They also include overcoming indecision because something else that disempowers people is not making choices in their life, kind of just waiting and feeling stuck. And some other things are practicing forgiveness. That's a very, very powerful way of taking back one's power because so many people have given up power and energy to grudges and being angry at someone from way back. And they say, well, how can I possibly... Forgive that person who's harmed me. How can I forgive this perpetrator? But what they don't realize is that the person who most benefits from forgiveness isn't the person being forgiven. It's you because you finally could relinquish the pain that you felt in your heart for so long. You can remove that, and then that frees up so much energy to live a more fulfilling life.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the why, because we all have reasons why we've adopted certain behaviors. They worked for us at some time, or we didn't have any options when we were really little. And so that was the kind of the best way to go for self-preservation. Um, so in regards to blaming and victimhood and not taking power, sort of how does that serve people and why do people stay in that mindset?
0: I think people could stay there because it's safe, kind of like you said before. Sometimes it's easier to play the victim than to take responsibility and to really change your life because, in a way, there's something in the victim mentality. It's like a righteous indignation that you can hold on to. I was wronged. I was harmed. I'm the victim. There's, a, in a way, a power in that, but it's a power that's actually quite disempowering because it's a power that keeps you stuck. Unless you take responsibility for your life, all aspects of your life, unless you do that, you really can't move on and make the choices you need to free yourself and live the life that you want and make, you know, the changes you need in your life to be fulfilled.
1: And I think it comes back to the other two pieces as I'm hearing you speak to being aware of your soul and feeling that you aren't alone and connected because If you're aware of your soul and you feel connected and know you aren't alone, it's not as scary to take responsibility for your life, right? It's not like you're just alone on the island and you're like, Oh my gosh, it's only me. I have to decide I might make a mistake and do the wrong thing. If you have a sense of connectedness, it's safer to jump to take the risk to say, Okay, I'm going to try this, even if I might be wrong or make a mistake.
0: Precisely, precisely. And that is is the third principle of the book. It's on this principle or changing an implicit core belief from I am alone in this to I am interconnected with everybody and everything and that there's, you know, I'm a part of something greater and that that something greater could really guide me and help me and support me and wants to get me to the best possible version of myself. You're not in this alone.
1: So you were super brave. And you did decide you were going to make changes. And you said, rather than questioning the ideas I had about what I was supposed to be doing with my life, I blamed myself. How ungrateful and entitled was I if this kind of life didn't make me happy? But you decided somehow to overcome that sense and say, no, I I deserve more, want more, and I'm going to make changes what do you think allowed you to be able to do that? Was there sort of a, a core quality at that point that let you leap?
0: Yeah, you know, I think it was in part driven by pain. It was like, I have to make the changes. And then it's so interesting because then a number of things started happening in my life and my life started opening up in that unexpected direction. Like it's um, the door of spirituality opened a little bit and I started studying, you know, in these different traditions started learning about the soul. And as I did, I found more and more people who'd overcome what I'd gone through and more and more ideas and communities that had different kinds of ideas about how to heal, how to grow, how to evolve, how to transform. And it's almost like when I became open, the universe provided me with opportunities to grow. And the synchronicity of it was that the timing was almost perfect. I was almost done with the formal Western medicine training that I had done, and I was finally ready for my spiritual training to begin, and then it opened, it started.
1: So we're going to take a short break, and then I want to come back and talk about the relationship between science and spirituality. So this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Dr. Anna Youssef about her new book, her new book, Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. This is KDPI, 88.5 FM, Ketchum, listener-supported radio. All right, we're back. So let's talk about the relationship between science and spirituality, and then the science of spirituality, which I'm still debating as to whether that's a, that's some sort of oxymoron or not, or whether it used to be and it no longer is. Um And you say, in much of science, there's a long-standing, unfortunate split between science and spirituality. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you have seen as that long-standing split and where you sort of think it stands now.
0: Absolutely, yes. And I think, you know, that split comes from various avenues. One of them is just the incompatible ways in which science and spirituality come into people's lives. So science, just by definition and by its nature, is something that is repeatable, observable, verifiable, tested with a double-blind placebo-controlled trial in a scientific method. And in contrast, spirituality is something that's predominantly subjective, personal, imminent, transcendent, something that doesn't easily lend itself to be studied through the mechanisms of science. And it's that fundamental incompatibility that makes it hard for, you know, science to truly grasp some of the tenets of spirituality. That's, you know, number one. And number two, Sigmund Freud, you know, one of the founding fathers of my profession, psychiatry, the psychodynamic branch of psychiatry, um, he and a lot of his contemporaries were atheists. And they were atheists in the sense that they believed people's need for something greater, whether it be religion or spirituality. What he termed that was an infantile neuroses, meaning that it was kind of like, you know, when a baby cries, the mother gives the baby the breast, right? And that breast soothes the baby. So like religion was kind of that metaphorical breast that you give people to soothe them when they're crying and when they have nothing else to, you know, um, soothe them essentially, that it's we turn to that out of weakness because we can't deal with the fact that there's nothing more. And it was a very, very prevalent belief because Freud was so influential for many years, but it actually still pervades much of my profession.
1: So let's talk about, in relationship to science, um, soul corrections and what they are. Um, Abraham Maslow says, we fear our highest possibilities. And so... We're going to kind of talk about both sides of it at the same time. One, sort of why why maybe do we fear our highest possibilities? And do we not, um, it's not just natural for us to, to look at where these soul corrections need to be and start making them and then how we begin to make them. So we better start with what a soul correction is.
0: Sure, sure, yes. And so the soul correction um, part, that's the second part of the book. And the soul corrections are those things that we come into this world to correct. And it's often those self-sabotaging, repetitive patterns we have in our lives that somehow or another, much to our chagrin and dismay, and despite our best efforts to change them, can end up causing pain again and again and again. And in my book, I talk about four of the main types of soul corrections. Improving your relationships, releasing addictions, harnessing your personal power, which we talked a little about previously, and transforming fear. And, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, uh... Do, should I? Do you want me to continue about
1: on it, or would you like? Yeah, to no, I think I think so. I think it's such an important element of the book and also of our lives, um, and connected with our purpose. And then, of course, that leads to more happiness and richer, fuller lives. So, so yeah, just maybe a little bit more about why um, you began to focus on soul corrections and also soul contributions, which we'll talk about in a little bit.
0: Sure, yeah, and so one of, um, you know, the main things people come to me looking for is a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives, and in my work with patients, I've come to believe that it's two things that help people make their lives meaningful. One is an understanding and alignment with their soul correction, which we just talked about, so people being able to know what it is that they have come into this world to correct, and some examples, specifically, of soul corrections are you know there's some people that will keep drawing in the wrong kind of woman into their lives over and over and over, despite consciously saying that they want a relationship. For other people, their soul correction is being able to have better boundaries with other people in their lives. For other people, it's being able to forgive. For other people, it might be making more concrete choices and not have, not falling prey to indecision. So those are all examples of a few of the soul corrections. And the other part of living according to your purpose is what you just mentioned, which is the soul contribution. Everybody has a unique contribution to make in this world that is your unique set of talents, skills, abilities, interests, and how those could be used to serve others. And your contribution could be anything from you know, running a company to being the most wonderful mother or father possible. To being a writer or contributing to the world through creativity of some sort, or being of service to others. It could be anything. And an understanding of the soul contribution together with your soul correction creates your soul purpose.
1: And in the book, throughout the book, you give very explicit And and just some you know examples that you have to read a couple times to think oh my gosh like this is just wild Um, examples from your patients' lives and your lives and throughout of people connecting with making their soul connections and also connecting with um, soul contributions and. What I loved was there's simple steps that people can begin right away and, and practice daily and 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 or weekly or once a month, kind of on their their own um, comfort level as to what they have time for and how quickly they want to make changes in their lives. You had said what sages and mystics have purported for centuries is now being studied by neuroscience and psychologists, our own personal worlds are a reflection of who we are and what we think, feel, and dream. And I'm guessing this shift in thinking may have been the most challenging for you to make coming from a scientific background, and that it might be the most difficult for other people to make as well, that once they decide they want to change and they believe they can change and they're ready to change, that the way to change is literally changing their minds and that that will then change their experience and change their environments?
0: Precisely, precisely. You know, there is certain elements of that that people, I think, are very open to accepting and other elements that are a little tougher to accept. You know, like in my profession, there's a school of thought, cognitive behavioral therapy, that believes that every feeling we feel is first predicated by a thought. And by identifying and changing those thoughts, we can change our whole lives. We can change what we feel and therefore the actions that we take. That's usually easier for people to accept. But then there's like an even deeper element of that, which is encapsulated in certain kind of spiritual things like the secret and the law of attraction, you know, things like that that have been popularized, which is that through your mind and through the contents and products of your mind, you really create your world in many ways. That it's deeper than just, you know, one thought, that your thoughts really could shift what happens in your physical body. People, you know, have had miraculous recoveries from diseases through their own minds and through the power of faith. People have also manifested amazing things in their lives by changing what is inside, you know, their mind and how they think about the world. So it's like some things are easier for people to accept, but others are a little bit more radical for sure.
1: And so how do you think, and your book is one, one answer to this, but how do you think we make a shift as a culture from understanding that that is actually the rule rather than the exception and that science actually supports that happening?
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, the way in which people start to buy into these ideas is to have their own personal experience with it. And so um, you can read about other people's experiences But unless you yourself have, in a way, made a concerted effort to shift your thoughts and really seen some changes in your life and in your world by virtue of shifting your thoughts, it's hard to believe that any of this stuff works. And so this is why in the book I try to give exercises to do precisely that, to really put these principles into action and to see, you know, and even like little things. You know, in my book, there's this idea of synchronicity, which is meaningful coincidences. In my own life, when I started on the spiritual path, my life began to be completely filled with little synchronicities that I felt were guiding me along, little coincidences here and there that I, you know, that started to emerge over time. And I wrote about that a lot in the book. But what that also means is, you know, given that we're part of a greater whole, that whole, that greater whole can help us. And you can ask for guidance. You can ask for signs. You can ask for doors to open. But as you ask, don't ask necessarily for something too specific because what the universe might have in store for you might be something much greater than you ever imagined. You might be limiting yourself by asking for what you want because what you're supposed to have is so much bigger. And so when you put a prayer in or when you ask, ask for you know something that is in accordance with your greatest good and the good of the people involved. And that way, that's a request or an intention set forth or a prayer that's set forth that kind of has a little bit of an element of surrender in it too. And that opens you to divine guidance.
1: And did you feel along this journey, Dr. Eason, that you had to kind of continually keep pushing your boundaries out a little farther when the magic of the universe started to show up in in small ways and then bigger and bigger ways?
0: Oh, I, I still feel that very much so, and I'm still, you know, continuously amazed by little things that just keep happening in a way that seem, like, it started with little things. Like, for instance, in my practice, I um, have numerous patients, and some patients, of course, they move on, they move to a different state, and then you, um, once in a while, I'll have a thought about a patient But I started noticing a strange thing. Whenever I just would have a fleeting thought about a patient I hadn't heard from in a while, they would call me the next day or later that day. And it started happening with such regularity. And to me, this was a little coincidence, but a meaningful coincidence or a synchronicity. I started actually pulling patients' charts before they would call, almost in preparation for their call, whenever I would have such a fleeting thought. And... You know, it's, it's these little things that guide you that you're, to me, this was something's happening that I can't quite understand, but this is very interesting. I want to understand this more. And that leads you along. That leads you to continue to be curious, to understand the mystery of what's happening.
1: Did you have to practice on it feeling safe to giving up more power to that universal force, that supernatural assisting force? In your day-to-day life, I'm thinking about there was another example you mentioned in the book where you had set up three chairs in your office for a client that was coming in because you had received a text in in some manner um, that she was bringing in her mother and her sister. It turned out there was no text. But I'm wondering if that you you had to sort of keep a balance of what felt like your own personal power and that then of being led by the the universe.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. And in in that example you describe, you know, this is a patient I've been working with for some time, and I got this mysterious text. So I um, set up the room for three people, and then I went to get my patient, and there she was alone without her mother or sister. And I said to her, you know, Carly, how did that happen? I thought you were coming with your mom and sister. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she's like, what? I was like, well, you texted me. She's like, I didn't text you, but that's the strangest thing that you thought I texted you because I was about to text you. And we were all sitting in the car together. And then my mom and sister at the last minute realized they couldn't come or decided not to come. So she was blown away that I had somehow gotten this strange communication. I was blown away because then I checked my text messages and the text wasn't there. She'd never texted me. But somehow some communication, <laughs> you know, was made. And I, my boundaries are continuously tested by these sorts of things because they don't really, like, fit into the Western medical understanding of the world, that there's these ways that we communicate outside the normal channels.
1: So let's talk a little bit about that, about the nature of personal reality and about coalescing matter, because mostly we think that that doesn't fit in with the laws of of the universe. But let's talk about quantum physics, particles, waves, and and consciousness, and where actually science for, you know, more than 100 years has shown that things aren't what they seem to be.
0: Precisely, precisely, yes. And so, um, so, you know, about this, example of, you know, how do we communicate with people, you know, at these distances? Like, how does, you know, this is something that probably quantum physics can give mechanisms for. And I'll just say, I also, after this happened to me, I started combing the medical literature. Are other people reporting strange cases with their patients of when something happens and it seemed to have happened through telepathy or what Freud called thought transference? And then there actually have been numerous reports of things like this published. And that includes therapists or patients having dreams about one another, and then the dreams come true. And there's, you know, one paper by a colleague of mine here, Janine Decayer. It's called Uncanny Communications and Porous Mind in the journal Psychoanalytic Dialogues. And in it, she cites 22 cases like this of patients and doctors who've had strange and interesting communications of this nature. You know, and how does this all fit in with our Newtonian physics understanding of the universe? Um, and that's, you know, at the root of the question, what is the nature of consciousness? How does consciousness work? And where does it reside? Does it reside in the brain or in the mind? And where does the mind reside? So these are some of the questions that I try to take up in uh, in my book.
1: And also how science validates some theories and not others and sort of sets us on a track. You know, Isaac Newton is sort of the, the father of of this area of science, and yet Bohr and Heisenberg and other scientists who have done experiments to prove that that maybe the the way the universe works is different from what we originally thought and that hard matter isn't really as hard as we thought and that things are made up of waves and particle and going a little more crazy that um, nothing really exists in the way that we're used to thinking of things existing until we focus our consciousness on it which is a huge leap and yet it's true
0: precisely, precisely, we bring our world into existence. And quantum physics is beginning to validate this more and more and more through the work, like you said, of people like Heisenberg and Bohr and also Pauli and Schrodinger and the pioneers of quantum physics. And it's really fascinating. And it's those, it's things like this that start to give mechanisms to how did these crazy telepathic things happen? Or, you know, are we matter or are we energy or... You know, are we all interconnected in strange and unusual ways that we otherwise couldn't really understand through a Western medical model?
1: And it seems like science in all aspects is starting to show more and more and validate those pioneers early on who said that we were, that we are actually connected, all of us and everything um, at every level.
0: Precisely, precisely, you know, and you know how you mentioned the power of the mind and consciousness to create our reality. This also accounts for how some people can have miraculous healings from illness, how the power of the mind is so above and beyond often what we know, how our minds really do create, in many ways, our external reality. And
1: so let's talk a little bit about the psychic experience because you've had it personally, your patients have had it, you know, personally, and you've had an experience with a psychic or, or one, one or more experiences that you talk about in the book, and your patients have had many experiences with psychic. And you even had other psychiatrists calling you and asking for a, a recommendation to a psychic. So this I'm guessing are things that we're not taught about and not giving a list of referrals and school at Stanford and Yale. And yet it's become something I think that you've begun to believe in, at least in some regards. So what was that like embracing this new field?
0: Yes, indeed. It's actually just been so fascinating because like you mentioned, my patients would come to me sometimes with having stories of their own psychic experiences or going to a medium, which is somebody who can channel people who have passed on. And just hearing and experiencing these things with my patients has opened my mind up so much. And then having my own experiences with this. I'll tell you about one patient who, um, whose parents, while we were working together, they died in close succession and in an in, in effort to kind of, come to terms and find some closure with what happened, he decided to go to a medium. And he wasn't a believer in any of this stuff. He decided just because, just because, really, he was curious. He needed some closure. And, you know, he decided he wasn't going to tell the medium anything because he wanted to see, is this for real or is this guy? And so the very first thing that happens when he starts talking to the medium is the medium says to him, there's a man here, and that man is calling you Fonzie. So Fonzie is from the Happy Days character, Arthur Fonzarelli, um, who's like the macho, you know, lady chaser guy. And it's so interesting because my my patient's father who had passed, that was his, like, term of endearment or pet name for my patient. And the fact that this that was the very first thing that came out of this medium's mouth, you know, my patient was just blown away, and suddenly he became much more open to these messages. And so you may ask, well, what if, the medium did research on my patient beforehand but nowhere and and my patient actually went on the web to see <laughs> could the medium have found this information anywhere about him but there was no such information this just you know it's like he pulled it out of thin air and he pulled out something so personal and so intensely unique to this patient that it just blew my patient away and really melted his own skepticism
1: well, and you had an experience in a coffee shop, I think, where someone, a psychic, walked up to you and said, "Can I tell you something about you?"
0: Yes, that was right as my journey was starting, you know. And at the start of my spiritual journey, it was like a number of synchronicities, one after the other, that was were really like slowly but surely melting my own skepticism. And so this was what happened with this psychic. Um, I'd mentioned part of my, you know, dark night of the soul was. Um, this man who um, I had met and who I realized was never going to be, I eventually realized he would never be as emotionally available to me as I had hoped. And so as um, uh, I was kind of going through this process, I was sitting right, in an uh, ice cream shop and a psychic and a child walked up to me and the psychic said, I'm a psychic and I have a message for you. Can I give you a message? And, you know, not feeling at all threatened <laughs> by a psychic with a child in an ice cream store, I said, of course. You know, what's, what's the message? And she said to me that you've met your soulmate, and then she gave me his name. And um, this man, is I, I, he, she said, you met a man, his name is, you know, I use the name Scott in, the, um, in my book. That's not actually his name. But you met a man, his name is Scott, and um, he's your soulmate, and things are going to work out for you. That was a message. <laughs> and, I, and I was just like, who is this person, and how does she know about this person I met, and where is this coming from? <laughs> it completely blew me away. I was just so surprised by this. But I thought, you know what, this must be how spirituality works. You get strange messages from God through people coming into ice cream stores. Okay, this is kind of part of my understanding of spirituality. And then, so that message to me, the fact that that even happened was meaningful, um, very meaningful, but then the interesting thing was that over time, things didn't work out with Scott, and so I was just kind of boggled, why did a psychic come into an ice cream shop tell me this, you know, this message from, you know, purportedly God, but then it didn't even work out, and then, you know, I thought about what she'd said, and she said things that are going to work out for you, you know, and actually in my life, Things really ended up working out eventually, and I did end up meeting my soulmate, and we were married a year ago. But at that time, you know, <laughs> I thought Scott was the soulmate. So, but so her message wasn't that things were going to work out with Scott. Her message was things were going to work out, and they did.
1: And it's interesting too because her message also could have been just purely a reflection of where you were at the moment, and what your issues and concerns were, and what information you sort of needed to have validated to move forward on your journey. And the idea, you know, it's sort of so simple and so complex at the same time, the idea of energy, and coalescing matter with energy, and the idea of how we are all connected, and deciphering messages from oracles, because... It's all a reflection of the energetics that we're experiencing at the moment.
0: Precisely, precisely. I think that that was exactly it because if nothing else, that validated something and that was such a meaningful event that happened, like such a synchronicity. And it just really opened me to this idea of, I have no idea what this is or how this happened or what this means, but I know it's meaningful, (laughs)
1: Let's talk a little bit about what you refer to as the storehouse of consciousness that collects us all, all, all beings, and then this sort of infinite pool of, of knowledge and information that may exist out there that that um, people maybe like Einstein and Mozart tap into.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And this is the question of, you know, like you said, what's the nature of consciousness and where does consciousness reside? So. For many years in the world of Newtonian physics, people believed consciousness to reside in the brain and that all our memories and everything were storehoused in the brain. And now, you know, with quantum physics and those developments, the ideas are actually starting to expand. And some people, they don't believe consciousness exists in the brain. It exists more in the mind. And the mind is something that really could be seen as something connecting us all. There could be this infinite storehouse, or, you know, some people call it the field. Lynn McTaggart wrote a book called The Field, which is where we can tap into for connections to higher consciousness, connections to creativity, connections to a universal force. And a lot of um, individuals who've made great discoveries believe that some of their discoveries came from connecting to this field. And an example of that is a mathematician from India named Ramanujan. He lived only 33 years, but he was a self-taught math math prodigy with no formal education. And in his very short life, he um, was able to compile and write 3,900 mathematical works. And this is with no formal math training whatsoever. And this was up until he was discovered by British mathematician G.H. Hardy and brought over from, you know, to England to study with him. He would see, um, uh, Ramanujan would see scrolls unfold before his eyes of these formulas, and he would then write them down. He was a very deeply spiritual man, and he thought that these scrolls were God communicating with him. So this is someone who is tapping into this field in a very, very deep way. And, you know, another example of that is the idea of multiple discovery, where multiple people on different sides of the world can come up with the same discovery at the same time. And a lot of science actually has examples of that. It's like people are tapping into somewhere and pulling it down together, kind of when the, you know, when the world is ready for it. It's
1: funny because I think often when we hear these stories, we sort of think of them as one-offs and that, you know, they're sort of could be hard to believe. And yet if we reframe our understanding of the universe as far as it really being a interconnected, whatever it is, of energy and waves, then that makes more sense Um, then it's not so far-fetched that these things are and can be happening because they're within the new adopted structure of the universe and our understanding of it.
0: Precisely, precisely, and I think that that's in a way where we're at right now. We're on the brink of a paradigm shift in our understanding of the human mind and of consciousness. And that right, right now, these ideas seem far out. They are the new paradigm. But one day, the paradigm probably will shift. And suddenly, these ideas, which are so revolutionary, will be mundane.
1: Well, and that it started to, and there seems to be some kind of chasm there, because for quite a while, quantum physics has shown that the world isn't made up of the matter that we thought it was, that it's made up of frequencies and waves. And And I think even intellectually, if you know that as being true, it's sort of hard to often bring it into your daily life until maybe you sort of open yourself up, and you had said that God said you only need a pinhole to open yourself up to these possibilities and experiencing life in a, in a new Way.
0: Precisely, precisely right. If you are open even a little bit to these ideas and have faith, you'll be shown. You'll be shown and you'll be guided. It's about being open and perhaps even asking for a little bit of help, whether it be through prayer or intentionality, even if you're a skeptic and doubter like I was my whole life.
1: And you teach people throughout the book how to do that. And in a way, I think that's extremely comfortable for even maybe the, the greatest doubter. They, they aren't going to have to um, really make an, a, a huge shift before they can start changing their lives with these practices that you provide.
0: Yes, yes. And that really is the hope. It's, um, the hope is to reach the larger audience and especially some of my colleagues who, you know, were not trained in thinking about things in this way
1: and yet i i was surprised throughout the book at the numerous examples of colleagues and um acquaintances and, and friends in the medical profession that had had similar experiences to you and who had sort of begun shifting their perspective on science the relationship of science and spirituality and then in your um your Afterward in the book, when you were making your thank yous to everyone, you know, there was doctor upon doctor upon doctor who had been involved in in uh, this project with you.
0: Yes, yes, it's true. And, you know, um, th- th- and that's the thing. I think this is where the shift is going. While there still exists a lot of skepticism, there's definitely people who are much more open, you know, and... Two um, former presidents of the American Psychiatric Association, Dr. Pedro Ruiz and Dr. Rodrigo Munez, they endorsed this book, which was such a beautiful thing to have people in my own profession, which could be so skeptical of these ideas, actually stand behind them. So I really feel and hope that, you know, people even in my profession, which could be skeptical, could become more open and would be open to, you know, reading this and using some of these ideas with their own patients.
1: And I think one wonderful aspect of the book that I know that I benefited from was by the end of the book, I was aware of where my lines were drawn. There is an example at the, um, towards the end with Elizabeth Kubler Ross talking about taking photos of her spirit guide. And she talks about taking some pictures of fairies and then going out into the woods and saying, all right, spirit guide, show up and clicks her camera. And then two weeks later, that was in the old days when you had to get your film, um, produced, that there was a picture of an American Indian standing there with his hands out. And and internally, I, I, you know, my reaction was, oh, right, like, that's not true. And yet, I absolutely believe in spirit guides, I've sought out my spirit guides. And so it was really interesting for me to be able to see, okay, that that's where one of my barriers lie, you know, I, I can push it out a little further as to what what's possible.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely right. And, you know, Elizabeth Kuparash, she's one of the foremost death and dying researchers, a researcher on the bereavement process. She is very scientific. And the fact that this woman towards, you know, kind of later on in her life was open to these ideas, it's such a beautiful thing. And I, I... completely agree. When I first read it, I was, you know, had the same response as yourself. And I was wondering, should I even include this? Are people going to think this is, you know, I'm like, no, you know, it's actually really interesting. I know a lot of people do indeed have spirit guides, believe in angels, believe in things of that nature. I think this is kind of an important thing to include.
1: So my favorite Einstein quote in the book, I think is the most important decision we make is whether we believe in a friendly or hostile universe. And I'm wondering if you have off the top of your head a favorite Jungian or Einstein quote.
0: Let's see. You know, I really like um, what Einstein says about what separates us. He calls it the optical delusion of consciousness. It's this idea that actually, the fact that we're all separate, and how we perceive ourselves as being individual, separate entities is really a delusion. It's a delusion in our own consciousness, and that we're much, much more un- interconnected than we ever thought. And this is, you know, Albert Einstein purporting these ideas.
1: And so I want to thank you for taking the time and energy to create this book and give it out to the public because for me, it absolutely was such a gift to understand in many ways how I'm connected with everyone else out there. And even for me at a more personal level of, you know, I from the time I was a child I had um I was very empathic and I had a lot of intuitive experiences. And I always felt like such a weirdo and thought, oh, you know, I was already kind of shy, quiet kid. I didn't really want to be that that um kooky person. And so just kind of kept it pretty much um held up inside and blocked it off as much as I could and really even today talk about a lot of things that happened to me and so it really was such a gift to be like okay Dr. Anna Usam is saying this is out there and it's real and it's okay and has embraced it and so it really gave me the um, support to do so as well so I just want to thank you.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much. That is, you know, from your mouth to God's ears. That's exactly the effect I hope that my book would have. And I hope that other people feel like that too. And thank you, Ellie, for sharing a little bit of your own journey with me and for taking the time to interview me.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining on the show. Thank you again. And so just in this last moment, your book just came out. And what was that experience like? And where can people get it?
0: Yes, yes, we had our book launch party at long last. It was the, you know, this passion project coming to fruition and it's available now in any bookstore as well as online in Amazon or your favorite bookseller and it's also available on my website which is com, and that's spelled a n n a y as in yoga u s as in sam I, M as in Mary, dot com.
1: Well, Anna, thank you so much, and uh, everyone who is listening, go out and get a copy, or get on your computer and get a copy because it really is is amazing.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Ellie. You take good care.